Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. I'm Todd Golden. I'm here with Matt Golden. Matt, say hello. Hi, everybody. And uh, this, just to remind you, if you didn't listen to episode one, this is episode two. And uh, it's just Matt and I kind of riffing about the uh, charts uh, over the over the years. Uh, we're starting out mainly with the top 40 Hot 100. Um, eventually, we hope to delve into other charts. But um, this week, we're going to do January 21st, 1978. And I picked this date. Um, we're trying to get to... We, last week, we did one from July uh, from 1983, which was just... Um, almost kind of like a pilot episode for us. Um, but we kind of want to be date specific. We want to be, you know, in the month that we're recording these. We're recording this on uh, January 13th. And um, I picked this one because Matt was born in 1978. Not He wasn't born yet. Um, Still about but, uh, two months away. Two months yeah, and you a were week. In the third trimester. You were rolling. So. Right. I'm older. Uh, if you don't, if you didn't listen to the first one, I'm seven years older than Matt. So I was in first grade at the time. So uh, I didn't know whether I was going to have a boy or a girl. And frankly, I still don't know whether I have a brother or sister, but that's uh, a bad joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Very funny. Um, so just a reminder of the format, Matt and I alternate talking about the songs. Um, we give ourselves five skips and I do want to um, straighten something out that we, I don't think we did mention on the last podcast. Um, the skips, we can't skip any of our songs in the top 10. So the skips will occur from number 40 to, uh, to number 11. So uh, those are the rules that Matt and I set for ourselves. Uh, Matt and I will each have a long-distance dedication. On our last podcast, we kind of messed up and glommed them on towards the end. We have more planned out this time. Uh, so that's the uh, format. Matt, how's your day treating you? Pretty good. Packers we're both one. So yeah, we're both. I live in Indiana. This is the first one we're recording remotely. Uh, the one we recorded last week, I was actually in Wisconsin um, on a work trip. Uh, I live in Indiana. Matt lives in Wisconsin, and but we're both from Wisconsin, and we just watched the uh, Green Bay Packers beat the Seattle Seahawks in the um, NFC playoffs. So, so we're some happy cheeseheads right now. But I'm ready to talk about some music. You ready, Matt? Sure, let's do it. All right, number 40, and this is our dude. He was mentioned uh, in a long-distance dedication in our last countdown. We have Miko again, and once again, he is uh, trailing in John Williams' uh, wake with uh, his version of theme from Close Encounters. Matt, hit me with some of the knowledge. Okay, I, I was kind of shocked by this because I assumed that Miko did Star Wars and only Star Wars. Oh, no. <laughs> but... He was- and it's also been so long that I've seen since I've seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind that I couldn't really remember what the theme sounded like. What? I I, I just assumed that it would be like the alien tones from when they finally um, have the encounter with the aliens at the end, like the do 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 over a disco beat. Yeah, and I, thought, I think that is part of it, but it's probably part of a Yeah, I mean, eventually towards the end of the song, they do kind of get to that. And I mean, all in all, but, I mean, the, it's not one of John Williams' best themes, I think. And I mean, it kind of, Miko's version is better. It's just basically the disco version. And yeah. actually, um, since I mentioned the John Williams version, that's a 
segue into our next number, which oddly enough is number 39 theme from Close Encounters of the Third Kind by John Williams. John Williams is like, bitch, I've got you beat by one spot. Why don't you sit your copy and ass down, Miko? That was, I'm sure that's verbatim what John Williams had to say about uh, their chart status. But um, as Matt talked about very, you know, at the time it was very, um, um, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was a was a big deal. I guess my when I saw this, um, I was like, you know, there's a lot of fans of famous uh, composers from movies. I'm one of them. I'm a huge Ennio Morricone fan. I love Bernard Herrmann. I like John Barry, who did the James Bond movies, among other things. Um, there's good there's fans of movie composers out there. And I know there's fans of John Williams as well, who, you know, is probably for most laymen, the most famous composer of all because of Star Wars and all that and Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I was wondering, you know, is there some fan out there who's like so into John Williams that he thinks like all the Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark fans are, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind fans are sellouts? I wonder if he's like, man, fuck all those people. Monsignor is the definitive John Williams soundtrack or Home Alone <laughs> 2, man. These all these sellouts listening to Star Wars. Home Alone Two is the shit. That's the John Williams. He, he did. He did Home Alone Two. That's he it. also did the Adventures of Tintin, the Secret of the Unicorn. Nice, nice, absolutely. And you know, there's somebody out there who has that on like super vinyl or something like that. So um, <laughs> probably the other thing, because I'm a dark person, is like at the end of the of Close Encounters of the Third Kind is of course very hopeful. Richard Dreyfus gets on the UFO with the aliens, and they're all very friendly. But I, I kind of wish it was like the end of Close Encounters was more like the the To Serve Man episode from uh, Twilight Zone. Like I like to think he got eaten, like when they closed the door. Yeah, possibly. I mean, That'd be cool. Right. So anyway, Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I could stand to see Richard Dreyfus eaten by aliens. That'd be kind of cool. Um, moving on, number thirty-eight is "You're My Soul and Inspiration" by Donnie and Marie Osmond. Matt. Okay, well, this is my first skip. Oh, um, is this a is this a Righteous Brothers cover? It is a Righteous Brothers cover. Um, didn't really want to waste any time on a Donnie and Marie cover of a Righteous Brothers song that wasn't really that good in the first place. And to tell you the truth, I didn't even listen to the whole song. Um, I didn't need to because it was bad. So <laughs> let's see. Moving on to number 37, we have Happy Anniversary by the Little River Band. Yeah, this is my first skip. And it's not because it's like a terrible song or anything. It's just kind of boring. It's actually a little different for Little River Band. It's kind of disco yacht rock. So this is one of their earlier American hits. Uh, Little River Band were from Australia. A little bit funky, but, you know, Little River Band haven't really aged very well. Either they're, you know, there's a couple songs, I suppose, that have, you know, done okay. But not a song that's worth spending a lot of time on. So I'm going to move on from this. My first skip, I'm moving on from this one, which takes us to number 36, As by Stevie Wonder. I always assumed that this one was called Always because that's kind of what Stevie kind of says as a response to the background singers in the chorus, but it's actually as, which is the first, very first word of the song. And I don't think it's 
mentioned any at any point else in the song, but this one kind of got lost in the shuffle. It was off of the Songs of the Key of Life album, but Sir Duke, I Wish, and Isn't She Lovely are all much bigger hits, and this kind of got lost in the shuffle, but it's a great song, um, and I'm assuming there was a single edit of this because it's seven minutes long. I'm guessing they cut it off before he started going into a Satchmo voice. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't remember this song, to be perfectly honest with you. I by by the late seventies, Songs in the Key of Life, I consider that to be Stevie Wonder's kind of last huge album. He had big hits after this, don't get me wrong, but like the, as an album artist, like after that he kind of got obscure a little bit. Um so I don't really I'm sure if I heard it I would I would remember it, but I, I don't have a whole lot of recollection of this one. Right. See, well, I, I think this was, this might have actually been its peak on the charts. So that's, I mean, probably why it doesn't get too much radio airplay. But it kind of has a similar feel to our next song on the chart, which is number 35, Lovely Day by Bill Withers. Yeah, Bill Withers, uh, you know, I don't know if this is his best known song. It seems to have gotten a lot of run recently because it has been in some commercials um bill weathers i i I really like bill weathers i actually have his album from the early 70s that has lean on me on it and um um god i'm drawing a blank his other his other big hit um ain't no sunshine ain't no sunshine i think was on the album before um the one use me geez that's oh Yeah. Yeah. Use the one with use me on it. Um, And that Bill Withers is cool because he was mellow, but he could get hard, you know, he could get more into harder edge soul when he wanted to. This is not harder edge soul. This is definitely mellow adult contemporary type soul. Um, I really, for a long time, because it doesn't compare to like use me and a couple of his other early hits, I never really cared for it, but it's not bad. It's fine. Um, it was noted at the time for having one of the longest notes ever sustained on a record. He sustains a note for 18 seconds towards the end of the song. So good for you, Bill Weathers. Bill Weathers didn't record. He had just the two of us with Grover Washington not too long after that. And then he kind of just stopped recording in the, I think in the eighties, if I'm not mistaken. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but he's still around and, uh, good singer and uh, should be fondly remembered. Um, Moving on, number 34, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, is Fun by Confunction. Gets with me, Matt. Yes, and it is actually pronounced fun. Um, Kind of a disco funk track. Um, Very similar sounding to um, the Ohio Players. Um. And according to some YouTube comments, this was a roller skate jam, which I could totally believe. <laughs> um, yep. Roller skate jams were, this is probably, you know, you're, you're in the golden age of roller skate jams. They're probably not too far away from roller, roller disco either. Yeah. For, I mean, probably about a year away or if maybe months away, possibly. But Hopefully Chip's episode with roller disco in it is imminent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But this was, I mean, this is the first time I heard it. It's, it's, I mean, 
decent as far as kind of disco funk tracks from that era go. Um, not really a whole lot to say about it. It's just um, what it is. <laughs> so, um, but let's move on here to number 34, Too Hot to Trot by the Commodores. Yeah, another funk track. And this was this one's notable, though, because uh, the Commodores, who started out basically as a, as a hard funk band, you think back to Machine Gun um, and Slippery When Wet and stuff like that, which is from the mid-70s, uh, they were a long ways away from Lionel Richie ballads at that point. They were um, a hard funk band and a pretty good one, too. This was really the last one that would be considered a true funk song that the Commodores put out as a single. Um, it's not uh, Lionel Richie sings backup on it, you know, just as part of the band, but it's sung by William King and Walter Orange, who were the other singers in the Commodores that people kind of forgot about. And it's definitely in that mode of, um, you know, the Commodores, the Barquets, the Isley brothers stuff of the time, Ohio players, things like that. Um, so it's, you know, it's just a song to jam to. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's anything special. It's very, you know, again, kind of a replacement level um, disco funk song. But because the Commodores went pretty soft after that by Lionel Richie's influence, uh, it's kind of the last of uh, of its kind. So, um, you know, but <laughs> moving on, this is a big one. Number 32 is Peg by Steely Dan. See, and I definitely started to appreciate stealing a Dan a lot more as I got older. I think there's almost like a switch that like trips off when you're like in your late thirties and you start going from like dismissing Steely Dan to thinking they're great <laughs> because it definitely happened with me. And this is one of the biggest singles from the Asia or actually probably the biggest single from the Asia album, which is, a classic and um, it's kind of infamous um, for its guitar solo. Um, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker were perfectionists as most people know. And the guitar solo is a really small part in this song, maybe like 10 seconds tops. And they went through seven guitarists and, and a godly amount of takes to get the perfect guitar solo. And there's actually a video on the U- on YouTube of Fagan and Becker kind of breaking down the recording of Asia. And I think they, it's from, that's from the great album show that Axios shows. I think I've seen that. Right. And they get to the guitar solo part and they do plug in some of the rejected guitar solos from the song. And, um, they definitely made the right choice. I mean, it wouldn't have, it's just like a small part, but it wouldn't have completely changed the song, but it would have definitely like something would have seemed off about it. If they had picked any of the other ones, if I remember right, most of them were a lot harder than this one was. Right. Yeah. This is kind of almost like a mellow kind of tone to it almost starts off with like a slide guitar at the beginning of it. And another thing in that, in that same show is um, the interview, Michael McDonald, who did the background vocals on the song. And he is just 
talking about how it was one of his most difficult jobs because he had to go from the very bottom of his range right up to the very top of his range in the next note. And um, when you listen to the song, I mean, most of his background vocals, except for the pig, are kind of like mumbled, but I mean, there are actual like lyrics to it before that. And he was saying that Fagan and Becker were wanted him to have like the precise pronunciation, the precise tone on every syllable and everything, but you can't really notice it in the actual finished song. Right. Asia is kind of the peon, I guess, to, you know, craft it to the point of obsession music. I mean, Asia is a great album. I've been listening to it. I just got a record player myself and it's one of those records that, will test the fidelity of your system and all of that. And so I've actually been listening to it a lot recently. And, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, for, for, for those of us who are listeners, it's, it's a pleasure to listen to. And I I agree with you that period of Steely Dan is one that you, I think you need to mature yourself into. Although Mm -hmm. I went through the derision of Steely Dan, like a lot of people did, because I was into their early stuff, which is uh, when they had more band members and, you know, like, uh, yeah, Skunk Baxter was in the band, and they did have a little bit. Um, I, I listened to "Can't Buy a Thrill" a lot. That was the first. That's mm-hmm. for, for the longest time the only Steely Dan album I had, and um, but that's a totally different sound than Asia is, and um, definitely you know, more. That that album is definitely more rock sounding. Yeah, but you could see the influences of where they were headed, though, and um, you know, very cool album, cool song, and um, you know. The uh, uh, probably the biggest hit Deacon Blues was and Josie when Josie comes home were also on that album that were big hits so right and Black Cow um, yeah. so yeah that was a big one yep see all right well let's move on to thirty one which is Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue by Crystal Gale yeah well this is a very well known song um, one of the bigger adult contemporary hits of that period. And just seemed to be, you know, I know you were, you, well, you weren't born yet, but I had a recollection of the radio by then. You know, that was the period where I would have been listening to whatever my mom and dad would have been listening to on the radio. And this was on all the damn time. And yeah, I don't yeah. really have an opinion of it other than when I did a little bit of research on it, I thought this was funny. Um, the producer of the song was talking to the writer of the song, which uh, was uh, I, I didn't write down the name, but was a songwriter that kind of a session songwriter. And the song was originally, I, I guess, intended for Shirley Bassey, who, who was most famous for Goldfinger and uh, two other James Bond songs. But um, <laughs> the producer got very strident about this song. And he go and he told the uh, writer, he said, quote, Shirley Bassey, my ass. I want that song. And it just cracks me up that somebody <laughs> that passionate about you know, a very M.O.R., uh, you know, kind of champagne country song, I guess. I mean, it's, it's it was a country hit, although I don't really know why. Um, so, but, you know, most See, people would know it. It's pretty boring, though. Right. Well, the thing, the weird thing about Crystal Gale is that she is Loretta Lynn's sister. Right. Which doesn't make any sense at all, but... Well... Um, Loretta Lynn had a lot of siblings. 20 years, 20 years younger yeah. than her. So, but. Uh, 
so yeah so number 30 we're switching gears here it's long long way from home by foreigner rock out matt okay well it's a classic rock i'm skipping this it's a classic rock staple and it's kind of lousy what else are you gonna say fine (laughs) it does kind of have a cool intro to it right (laughs) it's okay and we're into our first long distance dedication um todd who are you sending this one out to this one is out to everybody who ever tried to cross over from porn. Um, I'm going with uh, a song that probably nobody remembers called What's Your Name? What's Your Number? by the Andrea True Connection, which was at number 80 this week and uh, or January 21st, 1978. Andrea True, her big hit and her only, it wasn't her only top 40 hit. She actually had one other one, but her biggest hit is More, More, More. Um, Andrea True's story is fascinating. She was a porn pornography. She, she did hardcore porn, um, both before and after her musical career. And she had a desire to become a recording artist. Um, as you know, a lot of porn stars wanted to cross over into other things. And of course, seventies were the, you know, that was the, uh, golden era of porn or whatever, where, you know, went mainstream for a brief period and Andrea True was part of that. And she was, but her recording career came about almost completely by accident. She was in Jamaica doing a commercial, I think it was. And the, yeah. the Jamaican uh, election took place uh, that voted in a, you know, basically a, it wasn't a communist government, but it was a pro-Cuban government. And you had to, if you were in Jamaica, you had to spend whatever assets you earned in Jamaica on the island or you forfeited your assets. So Andrea True is down there making a commercial and the money she was going to make off of it, she was going to lose unless she invested it somehow. So she decided to uh, do her recording career and that's where she recorded more, 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 which is sort of the, the way I look at it is kind of a tribute to blowjobs, but um <laughs> You know, and it became a huge hit and a deserving hit, I think. I think that's one of the best disco songs of all. Um, it's got that great break in it that was later borrowed by Len uh, for Steal Your Sunshine in the 90s. And um, mm-hmm. song. So, of course, anybody who gets, a, you know, a big hit thinks they're going to have a lot more. Didn't turn out that way for Andrea True, but this was sort of the back end of her time on the charts. And... Um, the song itself is forgettable. There's no reason to really remember it. It's very much a just a shitty disco song. But I want to dedicate this to all the porn act- actors and actresses who crossed over and wanted to do something different with their careers. She did it a lot better than most. And right, the song is terrible, but it's not nearly as bad. And Matt, you need to go check this out. I was looking up her discography, and she put out three albums. This was mm-hmm. on, this song was on her second album. Her third album was called War Machine. Okay. It was put out in 1980, and it was her attempt at hard rock and kind of a message, um, kind of image change for her musically anyway. And there actually is a video for the song War Machine, and it's hilarious. It's uh, The lyrics are just, it's just the worst kind of rock you would hear from that period. <laughs> um it's it's a sight to behold so go go check that out but this is this is for you andrea true uh good for you for uh, crossing over 
<laughs> okay. What's next? Okay, next, um, number 29. We have Native New Yorker by Odyssey. Yeah, this is my next skip. Uh, just a shit house replaceable disco song. Everybody thought disco, and because of Saturday, I think because of Saturday Night Fever, I'm sure this was recorded before that, but um, everybody thought, oh, New York and disco. So I feel like this was a cash in song and it's not very good. So this one's getting skipped. Um, which takes us to number 28, which is Point of No Return by Kansas. Okay, this one is another lousy classic rock staple, but I'm actually going to talk about this one. Um, The no in the title is spelled K-N-O-W, by the way. That's right. um, The verses kind of have a doomed nautical journey theme, which was pretty common in 70s rock. Uh, We're going to talk about that later in the countdown. Okay. I mean, you have Closer to Home by Grand Funk, Nantucket Sleigh Ride by Mountain, Ride Captain Ride, and even The Wreck of Edmund Fitzgerald. But that theme kind of just serves as a space filler between uh, the shouted chorus and kind of the swirling prog stereotype yes-style organ that comprises like the other... 90 percent of the song yep. and i know you're a big fan of prog style organs eh, i mean i've kind of grown to like prog i mean not yes but and definitely not kansas but i've kind of grown to appreciate just, prog. Just so people are filled in <laughs> matt has long been a prog hater i don't i'm not saying he's wrong i'm just letting you know his history and why I'm oh, kind of teasing him. I, I like a lot of prog now. I'll I'll just throw that out. Hey, you've progged out. Okay. But it's, it's it's incredibly weird that something like this made the pop charts. Yeah, that, it is a weird song. And you're right. It has that kind of ascending and descending organ, which is annoying. I I, I, I dislike this song. So okay. what's, what's next? Number 27, What's Your Name by Leonard Skinner. Yeah, so... Um, I really like Skinner. I know people use them as a stereotype for Southern rock. I mean, they are, they're, they're, they're definitely one of the touchstone bands of Southern rock, but Leonard Skinner is actually really good. They deserve respect in the way that they um, earned through their music, not just kind of like, Hey man, let's go drink some beers and fly Confederate flag around. It's their music was better than that. But this Mm -hmm. song is a post plane crash single. Of course, um, several members of Leonard Skinner and their, their background singers, et cetera, were killed in a plane crash um, in late 1977 in Mississippi. And it's the plane crash story is one of the saddest stories of rock. I mean, it's if I read about it and the plane that they were on was deemed unsafe ahead of time. Um, and it was actually the last trip that Leonard Skinner was going to take on the, on the plane that, that crashed. Um, right. And Aerosmith had actually looked into using the plane and they rejected it um, because they felt they had some vibes that it wasn't the right way to go. Um, And it's you think about it and, you know, there were actually more survivors of the plane crash than those killed. But almost everybody who survived was pretty badly hurt. Right. You know, you think of plane crashes. I don't know that many people think of plane crashes per se, but, you know, you kind of hope 
for those who have perished in a plane crash that it was relatively, you know, like they didn't have much knowledge of it. I know that's probably wishful thinking, but obviously the band members who survived were aware of their potential fate ahead of time. So that was a, um, obviously a special kind of hell for them. And of course, the other part of it is that many of their friends died as well. And then there's the story of, of drummer artist Artemis Pyle, who was able to actually get away from the plane crash to try to get help. And he got shot in the shoulder by somebody who thought he was a trespasser. So, right. Um, so I'm sure there was a lot of sentiment for Leonard Skinner. Obviously at the time, this was on their last, obviously their last album, street survivors. Um, and this one's a pretty well-known one. It's actually, I don't think it's one of their better songs, but um, the emotional heft of it was probably pretty significant at the time, much like, some of John Lennon's songs would have been big in late 1980 and early 1981, same kind of principle. So, um, but you know, well-known right. song, but also it's another one of those though. That's a classic rock staple that, you know, you just get sick and tired of hearing after a while. So that's kind of the way yeah, I that's about it. But moving on, number 26 is blue Bayou by uh, Linda Ronstad. Okay. And I'm skipping this just because, what? Roy Orbison's version's better. No, for fuck's sake. That's not true. <laughs> it is. It is true. All right. You have, the, <laughs> okay. you have the bully pulpit of the skiff. I disagree with you on that one, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, number 25, high energy with you can't turn me off in the middle of turning me on. As much as I love the song title of this, which is very of its time, this is a skip. It's It's smooth disco. Um, it's a girl group actually, uh, which I suppose wasn't totally uncommon, but it was, they were patterned after the Motown girl groups, but the song itself isn't very good. It's just, it's, it's not bad. It's just there, uh, not worth really going into, um, any kind of detail about. So I'm going to use my bully pulpit and move on. And we're up to number 24, which is don't let me be misunderstood by, Santa Esmeralda starring Leroy Gomez. Holy shit. Matt, what do you have on this? Um, well, this is going to be our third skip in a row. Oh. It's, a, it's a disco cover of an animal song. And as far as I can tell, this was all that Santa Esmeralda ever did. They also did a version of um, House of the Rising Sun. I'm assuming eventually they got onto Sky of Pilot or Worm San Francisco Nights. But, eh, don't want to talk too much about it. All right. Your, <laughs> um, yep, your rules. Go ahead. Okay. Number 23, Emotion by Samantha Sang. Yeah. I'm actually surprised. Um, I don't want to spoiler alert the rest of the chart, but there's not more Bee Gees related stuff on the chart. Um, if you don't know this song, um, I'm sure you do, but this is basically a Bee Gees song in Samantha Sang's. Uh, clothing for lack of a better way to put it i mean poor samantha saying i kind of feel bad for her because um you know that that the chorus is of course is uh emotion is taking me over but she's not say she's hardly singing it i mean it's the beat it's barry gibb and the Bee Gees who are singing the chorus i mean she sings the verses but right really a Bee Gees song and it was it was an example though of um you know BGs were in that groove that just very few bands get into um, in a certain period where they could fart on record and it was going to go into the top five. So 
Um, and, and not to spoil it, but there is a song that's kind of like that later on. Right. But, but um, I actually don't mind this song. I think it's kind of, it, it's of its time. I was in first grade at the time. And I, you know, when you're in first grade, you're really only aware of the really, truly huge bands. And for me at that time, um, there were two that were truly huge at the time. Um, the Bee Gees, because they, and they were in their, you know, they were very much in their, peak period of saturday night fever at this point and the person you skipped a couple back linda ronstadt who is um she was it's hard to convey to people who run around how huge she was in the late 70s but anyway this song is um i can dig it on a kind of uh ironic cheesy level i like the bgs it's not that i don't but it's um it's basically a bg song pretty much yeah yeah so Moving on, number 22, You Light Off My Life by Debbie Boone. Let's see. I, I thought about skipping this one, but it's the prime example of 70s drag. Just an unescapable, like, maudlin ballad that was an enormous hit. Um, it set the record for the most weeks at number one. It was the number three hit for 1977 um, number 11 all time on billboards chart for the for really? all time. Yeah. And it made it to number four on the country chart for some reason. Yeah. The country chart really bizarre in the late seventies and early eighties. See, and it, it's a true one hit wonder because Boone never actually made it back to the top 40 after this. Um, she was, uh, Pat Boone's daughter, obviously. And, um, she was brought in to re-record the song and it's actually kind of a, kind of a horrible story, but, um, the producer and songwriter of this, um, the original version was done by Casey Sissick, who was kind of a jingle sing- singer. She did, um, um, Ford jingle she did um mcdonald's jingle from around the same time and this was supposed to be like her big breakout she um saying you light up my life in the movie you light up my life and they were going to use her version as the single but the producer and songwriter kind of came on to her and she rejected his advances so like he went behind her back hired Debbie Boone and basically told her sing this exactly like it is on the, on this record. Wow. Me too. It's not just for 2019 anymore. Right. And I listened to the original version and it is identical to the Debbie Boone version. Did you watch the movie? I didn't watch the movie. No, (laughs) it's awesome. No, I've never seen it. Um, it's hard for me to, the thing I find weird about this song, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when it was on the radio and it was on the radio a lot, but then it really, because it, I think because it it drew so much derision shortly after it's, you know, big run, it's almost like people were embarrassed that it had that run of the chart. You really never heard it much after that ever again. I mean, I, you don't hear, hear that song very, like if you listen to seventies radio, um, like on, on Sirius, you don't hear this song. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe right. once in a while, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it kind of, it had its huge run and then it kind of just 
fell off the face of the earth. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing because it's not a very good song, but um, it's kind of strange how that there was no revival of like, oh, we need to reassess You Light Up My Life by Debbie Boone, you know, which you did right. for even some of the shittiest songs ever. Um, nope, just kind of fell off the face of the earth. Pretty much, yeah. Let's see, and let's move on here. Um, number 21, um, either Desiree or Desiree by Neil Diamond. Yeah, who cares? You know, it's you can pronounce <laughs> it however you want. Um, this was my last one I didn't skip. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about this, but I feel like this, this song is actually sort of up tempo, um, at least by the standard of Neil Diamond in the late seventies. And I listened to this and I was kind of sad and I'm not like a huge Neil Diamond fan, but I, there are Neil Diamond songs I do like, especially from his so-called golden period at the late, at the end of the sixties and early seventies. And he could do up-tempo songs. I mean, Cracklin' Rosie is a decent up-tempo song. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Brother Loves Tra Traveling Salvation Show is not up-tempo all the way through it, but it has its up-tempo moments in it, and he pulls it off. Um, I think by this point, he couldn't do up-tempo songs. Um, I think part of it is ego, because there was way too much emphasis on giving his quote-unquote lyrical chops they're due in the course of the song and it would screw up any kind of up-tempo vibe that he had going to emphasize his lyrics which frankly weren't that good so um the only up-tempo song i can think of he put out after this is america a couple years later um but you know that's a it's not like that's a hard rock song or anything like that so um but yeah this song is it's it's Drek, basically. So, mm -hmm. Which brings us to your long distance dedication, Matt. And uh, what do you got for me? Okay. At number 66, this one goes out to Jeffrey Hyman, John Cummings, Doug Colvin, and Tomas Ederly of Forest Hill, Queens, also known as Joey, Johnny, Dee Dee, and Tommy Ramone. Yeah. I kind of figured you might pick this one. <laughs> right. And in their 20-year career, they never had a top 40 hit. This was the closest they ever came. Which song is it? And it wasn't... Um, oh, Rockaway Beach. Rockaway Beach. I forgot to mention that. but, um, And it wasn't for the lack of trying. They um, weren't like trying to be a punk band. They were actually trying to get on the radio. It just basically never happened <laughs> and um it was written by Dee Dee and basically just about going to the beach and complaining about the bus driver having disco on the radio um kind of a classic ramones track on um actually kind of surprised that this was their biggest chart hit i i would have assumed that sheena is a punk rocker rock and roll high school would have made higher than this but it did yeah i'm kind of surprised I, I rock and roll high school in particular i i would have figured that might have because by then people knew who they were and you know they at least had gotten some press at that point you know and rolling stone magazine and all that but um yeah i'm kind of surprised by that too what song by the ramones do you think could have been a hit because i have one in mind but what do you think 
Let's see. Hmm. Let's see. Well, I, I think this actually was a hit in the UK, but their cover of Baby I Love You definitely definitely should have made it to, to the top 40. I, I think. think if they would have released it, I think I Want You Around could have been a really big hit, which is in Rock and Roll High School. Or actually, I think it was recorded before Rock and Roll High School, but it was in the movie. And very much a power, you know, kind of a 60s style power pop song. I think that could have been a hit. Yeah. If not, yeah, the, if I not think that, you're right about that. And if not that. It also would have been interesting if um, Bruce Springsteen would have actually let them keep Hungry Heart because right. he did write that song for them. Yeah, that would have been interesting to see what their take on that would have been, though. It would have been probably about two minutes long, which would have been fine with me. Um, Maybe 53rd and 3rd could have been a big hit. You know, nothing screamed <laughs> bigger hits than, you know, killing transvestites in New York City. But so <laughs> anyway, moving on. Number 20 is also your song. Uh, kind of jealous you got this one. Sentimental Lady by Bob Welch. Let's see. And Bob is kind of covering himself here. He was um, a member of Fleetwood Mac in the early 70s. And this... Um, originally appeared on their Bear Trees album and he wrote and sang it and uh, the versions are very similar. Um, Welsh's voice is a little bit more nasally and it's a little bit more polished but there's still kind of the prominent um, background vocals by um, uh, Christy McVie who was his former bandmate at this time and it was actually also produced by Lindsey Buckingham, who was his replacement in Fleetwood Mac. And it's great. I mean, great song. I mean, probably one of the better kind of soft rock songs from this era. This is my favorite soft rock song from the late 70s. It's, I don't know why, I've always liked it. And I like the lyrics. I like how vulnerable he is in the, in the lyrics. And I do like the Fleetwood Mac version as well. I like Bob Welch, period, Fleetwood Mac generally. It's the kind of forgotten era of the band, but um, there's some good stuff. Kind of unfairly maligned, too. Yeah, I mean, very unfairly maligned. It's good stuff. Right. And, I mean, a lot of people pretend that, I mean, Fleetwood Mac was just this terrible band, and then Lindsay and Stevie came in and they became great. But it was kind of like going from, like, a B-plus band to an A-plus band. Yeah. Yeah, that's Re- that's fair. I mean, everything that made them famous was there when Bob Welsh was in the band. It just didn't happen for some reason. Right. I mean, I have two albums from that era on, on disc. And um, Future Games, is uh, that was the first one they did with Bob Welch. And it's okay. The, the song Future Games is really cool. Uh, but the one they put out after that, Bear Trees, that's a great album. I mean, it's the problem was... is. Right. Fleetwood Mac had their first era, which when they were a blues band. And so they alienated all their blues fans by basically going mellow um, with in the Bob Welch era. And then it never really happened, as you mentioned, for the Bob Welch period of Fleetwood Mac. And um, tastes had changed by the mid-70s by the time um, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks came in. So just kind of bad timing, really, on the part of... Right. Um, Bob Welch and just was probably a little bit ahead of his time. And, but he got his due in the late seventies. This was one of, uh, uh, you know, a couple hits off of, uh, at that point. So 
Yeah. Ebony Eyes was a big hit. Ebony too. Eyes, yep, which is also kind of a cool song. So, but um, yep. um, what's next, Matt? Um, let's see. Well, number nineteen, we have "I Go Crazy" by Paul Davis. Yeah, this is a skip for me. Uh, big song, considered to be a big yacht rock song, but this song is just there's nothing to it. I mean. And actually, at the time, set a record for the longest amount of time on the chart. It spent 40 fucking weeks on the chart for a song that really is just, it's, there's nothing to it. So this is a skip for me. I just have to say, what the fuck, USA, for keeping this song on the chart for almost a calendar year. So, but um, number 18 for you is Dance, 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 Yowza, Yowza, Yowza by Sheik. All right. Um, let's see. Well, Sheik was very good at recognizing that you could just reduce disco down to its basic elements. I mean, you get a funky rhythm guitar, get a sweet bass line, um, maybe add some string stabs, four on the floor rhythm, and don't even have to worry about the vocals except for a big chorus. And in their case, they had kind of like the whispered kind of monotone vocals. And that was a formula for almost all their singles. And Dance, Dance, Dance was not the exception to that. And no, um, it, I mean, it was a formula, but it was a really good formula. And um, all their singles are pretty memorable. Um, kind of the My- upper half of the disco singles. My disappointment in this song is it's a big tease because they in the song they sing dance, dance, dance. Where is the yowza, yowza, yowza? There, there is a yowza, yowza, yowza. Not enough. <laughs> not enough. Not, not if it's going to be in the song title. I'm kidding, of course. I, I, you're right about Sheik. I don't understand though the sentiment to put them in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't get it because you're right they boiled it down to their elements and i'm not saying their songs are bad but and nile rogers and bernard edwards were influential beyond chic of course as producers but i don't know i I don't feel that i don't feel chic going into the rock and roll hall of fame i'm i I don't know i hate to shit on chic but right about you well i mean eventually i mean nile rogers was inducted kind of as a producer and a sideman and I think they kind of did that for to make up for the fact that they were nominated for like 10 years in a row or something. And Yeah, but why were they nominated in the first place? I don't even get it. Yeah, I mean, they have That's to have wrong. a disco act in there, I guess. They they must have gotten along with Jan Winter or something. I don't know. I don't I'm I sound like I'm crapping on Chic. I don't mean to. I just don't see it. But so right. Okay, well, let's move on to number 17, um, Serpentine Fire by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, I think this one's kind of unique among the Earth, Wind, and Fire um, singles in that most of their songs are very horn-driven. Not that they're, they don't have other elements of funk and all that. They're kind of a you know mellow funk band for the most part. Um, but this one's more percussion-based. It has a different kind of beat to it than a lot of Earth, Wind, and Fire songs do. Um, which is kind of cool. It makes it sound a little bit different than some of their songs, which can be samey. If I... 
mean, I'm not saying they're bad. I like Earth, Wind, and Fire fine, but, um, you know, and it's a sameness that's, you know, I, I, I equate them with Sheik a little bit too in the respect that, you know, they hit on a really cool formula, you know, very talented band, of course, um, and wrote it for a long time, and they were very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, Earth, Wind, and Fire to me, they're very good, like I said, but they're not a band that I seek out very often. Like I had a, I went through a funk period, um, in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, but earth, wind and fire, they, they kind of remind me of, of Bruce Springsteen to some degree. Like I respect Bruce Springsteen and I like a lot of his stuff, but I don't think I've ever sought out Bruce Springsteen. You know, he's just kind of there. And I feel like earth, wind and fire is kind of like that for me as well. Right. But, um, yeah. yeah, moving on. Kind of, kind of the same for me also. So. Yeah, they're not bad. I mean, I, I don't have anything against them, but I just, I I feel like there's funk that speaks to me better, which sounds ridiculous to say as a 48-year-old uh, white guy living in mostly in the suburbs of my life. So, right. yeah. But anyway, moving on, number 16, and you seem to be the one getting all the ELO songs. You had one last week, I think. Uh, right. This would be Turn to Stone by by ELO. See, and this was their first disco, like true disco single. And the question I have about ELO is, did they actually go disco or did their style eventually just crash into disco? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Because, I mean, they already had like kind of the disco strings going in their early songs. I mean, pretty much all they had to do is just adopt a disco rhythm to go disco. It didn't seem as like much of a sellout as like the Stones doing "Miss You" or um, I think the Beach Boys did a disco song around this time. Or Rod or Rod Stewart. Rod doing... Stewart with um, "Do You, you think, think I'm Sexy?" Sexy? But yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I. But then you listen to a New World record, which was out not very long. Well, was this on a New World record? No, this was on Out of the Blue, which came after that. Okay. So New World Record was out maybe a year or so before this. and But you wouldn't listen to any songs on a New World Record other than maybe So Fine, which we used to hear a lot because it was on our dad's mixtape, but um, that you would think would be disco. At least not. I don't think so. But you're right. I mean, they did have the elements there mm-hmm. uh, as part of their sound from the beginning. So, yeah, maybe disco went ELO. I don't know. Could be, yeah. But then ELO decided they wanted to become like robots, um, not robots, but go more robotic by the by the 80s and kind of uh, screw the pooch a little bit. But right. so what's next? He Let's said, see. No number 15, Sometimes When We Touch by Dan Hill. I am so glad I got this song. <laughs> and I'm so glad that it came up early in the podcast, in our if we if we continue to do these in this podcast because this is the worst goddamn song ever recorded in the history of pop music i hate this song so much it is played in the one circle of hell satan uses it to torture people he doesn't even need anything else this is all he uses it's like the it's at the deepest depths of hell and pretty much matt if you want to use this song as my standard um, going forward for songs that are terrible, um, if it falls below the sometimes when we touch line or even approaches it, 
then you know it's terrible because this song is so incredibly bad. Um, you know, I, I know, and I don't know that you accuse me of this, but I've been accused at times by some of my friends of being a little over, especially when I was younger, of being over sincere and a little bit mushy. Like I'd sign like your books and, you know, it rather than tell a joke or something like that, I'd be like, Hey man, you're so cool and all that. So this is in that realm in terms of how overwrought and mushy this song is. I mean, it doesn't even begin to describe it. It's like, um, it's like the song is trying to hug you, but in reality, it's like an unwanted hug from a stranger that, you know, just creeps you out. Yeah. You just want to push it away. (laughs) I mean, the lyrics are, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to hold, I'm, I'm happily married and I don't ever want to hold anyone until I break down and cry. I don't even know what the fuck that means. <laughs> I mean, and the inflection in his voice as he sings, it sounds like it, it's like he's trying to hold off the fact that his voice is cracking, but he does it for a, but it's so calculated because he does it for effect to make it sound like, um, you know, like he's being open with his lover or whatever. So it's horseshit. It's not even real emotion. It's fake emotion that he put into the song to amplify the lyrics, which makes it even worse. So, and then Dan Hill, who I, he had another pretty mushy hit, like in the eighties, I forget. It was a, it was, was it can't we try? Yeah. Can't we try? Which wasn't as bad as this, but still pretty bad. But he was such a dickhead that he actually made a, he made a video for this song, which is, you know, we're talking about 1978 he made a video for it in 1994. So presumably to play on VH1 or something like that. So I can't even respect that either. But so this song is just God awful. I hate it. I've always hated it. Um, I once wrote a parody once where the reason that the Israeli Egyptian pact was signed is that Jimmy Carter locked Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin in a room and played this song until they agreed to peace. That's right. how. I mean, that'd be cool if that were true. Um, but however, I will give it one saving grace, Matt. And that's What's that? that? Among the many covers of this song, Manny Pacquiao, the boxer, covered it um, <laughs> with, with Dan Hill helping him out. And his version is actually quite a bit better than Dan Hill's, if I'm <laughs> being honest about it. So, yeah, this song is evil. I it deserves to have a stake put through its heart i i I agree with that i I totally agree with that so moving on number 14 is love is thicker than water by andy gibb and you mentioned this earlier that the bgs could pretty much flirt out a record and it would become a hit and that's the case of this which is um uh, the bgs younger um brother um younger and considerably more photogenic brother oh yeah and basically i mean i'm not i mean this is my theory on this but i'm guessing hey we have this we have our brother we can just like pawn off his our b-sides and our outtakes on him and he's good looking enough where it might actually make it because we're writing the songs That's harsh. The, yeah, I mean, you're, it's... you're accusing the Bee Gees of some heavy-handed shit there. <laughs> right. I I don't know. I mean, Andy, the the one song I like by Andy Gibb is um, um, 
I want to be your everything. I think that's a legitimately pretty damn good song, actually. Has a BG's didn't sell them out on that one, I don't think. Right, but I mean, this song is pretty lousy. What do you can't write that? And it did eventually go to number one, and it's probably the most forgettable number one single ever. Wow, Man, but you hate Andy Gibb? Who knew? <laughs> but. To give you an idea of how huge Andy Gibb was at the time, though, I actually know two guys my age who were named after him. Really? One of the guys, his name actually was literally Andy Gibb. Um, It's a guy I knew in college, and he's like as far from the actual Andy Gibb as possible. But anyway, and also um, Joe Walsh played on this song. Who's the dude? Kind of... This is how my non sequitarian stream of consciousness mind works. Wasn't the guy who played Ogre in Revenge of the Nerds? Wasn't his last name Gibb? Yeah, he was Donald Gibb. Yeah, Donald. A lot Gibb. of people were named after him too, <laughs> right. because of that in First and Ten. He... Yep. So, <laughs> right. Well, let's move on to number 13, which is Run Around Sue by Leif Garrett. Nope, not doing it. This is a skip. That's all (laughs) I have to say about it. Moving on from that, number 12, Every Time I Turn Around, Back in Love Again by LTD. Um, Yeah, I'm skipping this one. Um, Just kind of a basic disco track. Um, Honestly, kind of surprised that it was this big of a hit, too. Um. See, so moving on to number 11, um, have some 70s Joel, um, Just the Way You Are by Billy Joel. You know, among the soft rock songs that Billy Joel did, this is probably his best one. Um, musically, it, actually, musically, I kind of like it. It's, it is a rare 70s song that has, I think, Matt, you may disagree, 80s sax in it. I feel like the sax solo in this song would fit in right with like one more night by Phil Collins or something like that. I don't feel like this is a seventies sax song. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, what kind of, I mean, it does have the Fender Rhodes piano, which does kind of. Yeah. Bring it into the I, 70s. I, was, I was about to get to that, but. Um, but the, the re- sax definitely is eighties. Yeah. Just to remind everybody, if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, we re- we defined 80s sax and 70s sax there is a difference so um this i would put in the 80s sax category but as you mentioned um the fender that they use in this um is definitely late 70s keyboard and it had that kind of quality to it it's kind of like a juicy reverb that was definitely of its time like within a year you wouldn't hear much before or after this that had that um kind of almost crystalline glowing sound to it. I, I'm not describing it very well, but right. um, the, you, the Doobie Brothers used it a lot yeah, around the tank, Doobie Brothers same time definitely period. did. And so I kind of like that sound because it's reminds me of the music I was hearing when I, you know, when I first started listening to the radio, whether, you know, even through my parents. So um, definitely of its time. Um, I go back and forth with Billy Joel. Some of his stuff I like, some of his songs I detest but this song's okay i mean for a soft rock song uh certainly there's worse so 
Moving on, this is a big, big, big one. Number 10 is Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. See, kind of a ubiquitous disco smash um, on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, which was an enormous hit. And it's kind of like the go-to when anybody wants to evoke the late 70s or disco. And also eventually made it to number one, like a few other of the singles from the Saturday Night Fever. And I mean, it's, I mean, what more can you say about it? I mean, it's just kind of, I mean, it, it is this time period. Yeah, no question. And I, I will say this song did the ultimate um, in terms of how timeless it is. And this was one of the very, very, very few disco songs that you could play in the eighties and people wouldn't cringe. Like, You'd play, say you put on Staying Alive in 1985 or something like that, when disco was most certainly, you know, probably at its one of its lowest ebbs in terms of respect and all of that. But you could throw this song on and people like, yeah, the Bee Gees really sold out in the late 70s, but this song is cool. So this this song never really ever did go out of style, unlike a lot of disco songs that we fondly remember now that were laughed at in the 80s. Like if you threw the village people on, people weren't ymcaing at sporting events in the 80s to the village people you know people would would have Mm -hmm. would have just scoffed at that so um in that respect the song uh you know overcame even though it defined its era it over kind of overcame it too when there was the backlash against it so um but yeah cool song it's not my favorite one on the saturday night fever soundtrack but it's obviously iconic and uh you know right pretty cool see all right. Well, let's move on to number nine. Um, Come sail away by sticks. Yeah. So Dennis DeYoung did a really um, amazing trick on this song where he stretched out the first word um, into a three syllable word. And that word is I'm. He gets, <laughs> I'm sailing away. I don't know how, you know. That was actually a pretty good imitation there. I know. Well, you know, I don't do many things well, but God damn it, I can sing Dennis DeYoung. Um, <laughs> it's a bad start to a pretty terrible song. I I would say this is the worst stick song that was a hit. I don't know if you agree with me on that. Babe's, babe's a lot worse, I think. Um, they, There's some choices. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you, but... Uh, no. Not really a great band. To to quote Casey Kasem, this song's just ponderous. I mean, it's just it doesn't go anywhere. It's just boring. It's pretentious, which you know is kind of that first sign that Dennis DeYoung was pretty pretentious, pretty pretentious dude. Um, the cover of the single is funny though because it has a it's a clipper ship um, being trailed by a UFO. Because why not? It was the late seventies, and they did that shit on album covers, but. Um, actually, I think in the song I read about it and his intent was, is it was, uh, the band or somebody, whoever the protagonist of the song was evolving from, um, being held down by, uh, being on a ship of their own making to becoming part of a starship that realized all their dreams. I'm simplifying that, but which is why I get, right. up, which is why it gets up tempo towards the end of the song. But uh mm-hmm. there's biblical references in it it's all over the place it's pretentious it's dreck is what it is and um 
pretty much. I don't dislike sticks. I know Matt loves sticks, but um, no, no, no. Oh, no, you no, do. No. <laughs> but um, so yeah, but this song's pretty bad. Um, moving on, I've never heard this song before. Number eight is "We Are the Champions" by Queen. You know that one? Let's see. And if if you've seen the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, um, this was actually on the charts two years before it was written. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> I'm glad I, I, <laughs> because I they, to see Bohemian they, Rhapsody so I can see how fucked up and inaccurate it is. That's why right. I haven't seen it. For it, Within our family, I'm kind of the old man who's like, I'm never seeing Bohemian Rhapsody because they made a bunch of shit up, which they did. So, But I'm sorry, go on. Okay. Well, this was inspired by um, the audience at one of their shows um, singing You'll Never Walk Alone, which is kind of a kind of been adopted as a football anthem or soccer anthem in the UK over the years. And um, they heard that and they were like, hey, why don't we write our own version of this? And that became We Are the Champions. And um, We Will Rock You is the B-side to this. In some countries, it was released as a double A-side. But in the US, um, We Are the Champions was separate which is odd for me because almost every time i've heard this song on the radio it's always preceded by we will rock it's odd for me too i I didn't realize that right and it's i mean used in tons of commercials basically if your team wins a championship you're gonna hear this song yeah and it's it and We Will Rock You just kind of sports anthems. Yeah. For the most part. What's ironic is is that if they wrote it as a either a replacement or competition for You'll Never Walk Alone, which is back in the seventies I think was sung by most English fans. Now it's basically considered a Liverpool anthem. But um I don't know that there's any clubs in England that are famous for adopting We Are the Champions. Um there's various other songs that clubs have adopted, but I don't, I know it's gets sung, but I don't think it's like some club didn't glom onto this song and say, this is going to be what we play after we win a match. So I don't know that queen had the intended effect um, on that one, but right. I think it's most triumphant moment was being played um, at the end of revenge of the nerds. Right. Right. Bringing up Donald Gibb again, actually. I know Donald Gibb is all over the place, and he was, and he became an honorary nerd in the sequel. You're right, right, yep. Which is a very memorable movie, right? And let's move on here to number seven, which is "Hey Deanie" by Sean Cassidy. Yeah, this song. You know, you'd think I might after we kind of, I don't know that we slide Queen, but. Definitely slagged Sticks. Now, Queen and Sticks are very well-known bands. Sean Cassidy would be considered a very of-the-moment teeny bopper uh, star. I slagged Leaf Garrett slightly, uh, you know, a few a few uh, spots ago and skipped his song. But I kind of dig this song. This is legit bubblegum, which there wasn't much bubblegum in the sense that you think of it, um, you know, like from its period in the late 60s. Um, and it was written by my boy Eric Carmen from the Raspberries. So, and this song would not sound out of place on like the first or second Raspberries album. It's in that mode. So, 
It all Kermit. Kermit also wrote um, "It's Rock and Roll," which is his other big hit too. Right. Yeah. Eric Carmen was uh, was was feeling it at that point, but it also wouldn't sound out of place as like filler on an Elton John album. There's a certain quality like to the rock that would sounds like an Elton John rock song, like not hard rock song, but you know, uh, one of his uh, one of his kind of mid tempo type songs. So. You know, I'm not saying the song is should be better remembered or anything like that, but it's not bad. I mean, as Teeny Bopper product is concerned, which is what this was, there's certainly a lot worse. So, but um, Sean Cassidy, who was huge at the time, he was definitely the um, Tiger Beat uh, teen king or teen teen dream of the time. Uh, he went on to become a TV producer and he was pretty prolific. He had eight kids. So good for him. And, Hmm. um, you know, not a song that probably a lot of people remember, but probably a song that doesn't deserve to be forgotten either. So, um, number six is slip sliding away by Paul Simon. See, and I didn't know this, but this was actually on his greatest hits album. Wasn't on any of his other albums. It was kind of a bonus track and, probably the first instance of that um it's pretty common in the 90s for artists to like put a single at the end of their greatest hits right album and kind of release it as a single but i think this may have been the first instance i might be totally wrong about that but um features background vocals by the oak ridge boys and um kind of similar sounding to still crazy after all these years kind of like that mellow kind of yeah. tone that paul simon was going it through it also has the keys like just the way you are on it too it also has those that style of keyboard on it right right yeah exactly but um not one of my favorite paul simon solo tracks actually kind of prefer his earlier ones like Coda Crow hmm. and Whether a Child Reunion, but this actually is my favorite solo Paul Simon. Oh, okay. I mean it's it's not terrible, but I mean it's I mean it's just kind of there, I guess. I like the lyrics to it because it he's painting basically a portrait of multiple people in it and um I always thought it had a kind of a cool it's not it I guess it graduates to mid tempo. It's not quite mellow, but it's kind of in that on that borderline between the two. So I always thought it was kind of cool. Right. Let's see. Well, let's move on here to number five, Short People by Randy Newman. I'm also glad I got this song. And I want to send a half, kind of a half sincere fuck off to Randy Newman for this song because. The backstory of this is I was the shortest person in my class well into my high school years, maybe all the way through. I had a growth spurt in my junior year, I think it was, and I think maybe I passed a couple dudes, but I was the shortest person in my class by a pretty significant margin. And so this song comes out, and of course the intention of the song is it's ironic. You know, it's like, what kind of asshole could, you know, hate Randy Newman was going with it. But good right. luck uh, getting first and second and third graders to understand irony in a song. They just thought it was a cool song to hate on short kids. So if I were getting teased about being short, this wouldn't be like the entryway to it. But 
like it'd be like the um like the the put down you walk away from like hey man why are you picking on me because i'm short and they'd be like hey man short people don't have no reason to live so (laughs) and that would have been going on for probably most of the time i was in school so um you know so you know fuck you randy newman (laughs) yeah i mean it is kind of i mean it was since it's Randy Newman, it's definitely ironic. I mean, he he did a song a couple of years earlier called Rednecks, which kind of kind of similar, kind of poking fun of rednecks, kind of an ironic way. But won't really mention the lyrics because there's lyric there's um, certain slurs in it that yeah. probably shouldn't be mentioned. Oh, I have no doubt that he was. I know what he was going <laughs> for in the song, but I'm just saying if you were. I would have been six years old when this was on the charts. So the influence of it would have gone beyond that. But good luck explaining the irony of this to somebody who's in second or third grade. They just thought it was a cool put down. So, right. Um, so, yeah. So even though I know you had noble intention, intentions, Randy Newman, you know, fuck you. <laughs> I'm short and I'm proud of it. So, no, I'm. It, it's it's actually... It did take me, though, until adulthood to really listen to this song because I'd hear the first lines and I'd be like, nah, you know, when I was younger, I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't want to hear this shit. This is bullshit. So short people uh, are sensitive. All right. So moving on, number four for you, Matt, is You're In My Heart, The Final Acclaim by Rod Stewart. Okay. Um, I mean, this is one of Rod's better known songs um really i mean most i've just noticed the chorus on it which is kind of almost like an anthem um kind of anthemic chorus um but never really paid too much attention to the verses and they're totally ridiculous it's basically uh, just favorably comparing his girlfriend to certain things, including um, a big-bosomed woman with a Dutch accent, um, Celtic FC, Manchester United. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is that one line in it. I actually thought this song was written, and maybe it's, I'm influenced by the video, I actually thought it was written actually with the Scottish national team in mind. Okay. I, since he brought that up, I thought that there definitely was two ver- versions of the video. The version that I saw was um, Rod playing this in um, an empty restaurant accompanied by a waiter on a violin. And it was kind of shot like a softcore porno. Yep. Just kind of like blurry lighting and everything. Yeah, soft lighting and all but that. But I, I thought for sure that there was like a Scottish national team video. Yeah, there is. I, I think... I seriously think that this song was at least partially intended um, to be accompanied for the 78 World Cup, which would have been, you know, several months later. But um, but Scotland would have already qualified by the time this was out. So I don't know. I could be way off on that. But what I do know is that 78 or 70 Scottish soccer footage is pretty ingrained in popular culture. You got this and you got uh, the infamous scene in train spotting with uh, Archie uh, Gemmel, Archie Gemmel. Yep, scoring against the Netherlands. Yep. So, um, 
you know, I do have one question about this song and several others on the countdown. This is the last one that's like this. But why the hell do the actual name of the song is You're In My Heart. And then in parentheses, it has the final acclaim. Why? What's the point of putting any part of the song in parentheses? What's your theory on that? For this one, I I have no idea what Rod was doing because he doesn't say the final acclaim. Um, maybe that was like the original title before he came up with the chorus. Who knows? Yeah, because I'm counting right now. We have one, two, three, four, five out of the top six. There's six songs in the top 40 that use that, that have that in their song titles. And I've never understood what the point was of that. But maybe you're right. Maybe it was there was an earlier version and they kept it in there for songwriting royalties purposes. Who knows? But so, so what's next? Um, next, we have um, Here You Come Again by Dolly Parton. Yeah, this is a pretty cool song. And it's one of the first instances in the way in which we think of it in the late seventies and early eighties context of a country crossover, um, a song by a country artist that was definitely calculated to go pop. And without a doubt, that's what this song is. Um, and if they were trying to create a template for it, they did a pretty good job because Dolly obviously, um, you know, and she later proved it with nine to five a couple years later, but could do pop and, up until that point, she had been, um, you know, obviously uh, a country singer had sang, had been linked with Porter Wagner for a long time and had her own hits in the mid 70s. And um, but none that were quite like this one. And it was a big hit. Not only was it a pop hit, but a country hit as well. So um, and a lot of uh, especially female country artists followed in her footsteps. Tanya Tucker put out an album not long after this that tried the same thing. And um so Dolly Parton almost kind of broke the mold for a lot of people who would do country crossovers, you know, well into the early 80s, especially after Urban Cowboy came out. So um, it's the album cover of it is funny because it's like they're trying to do a bunch of different tropes at the same time. So you got Dolly dressed down in kind of a prototypical, you know, Beverly Hillbillies country girl outfit with a tie down shirt and uh, and blue jeans and all that. And, uh, you know, she's showing off her rack and all that. And and but she's superimposed against what looks like like a like a like a replacement disco. And then the, the okay. name is in like disco cursive, for lack of a better way to put it. So um, but it worked. And, uh, and it's a pretty good song, I have to say. And um, so good for you, Dolly. Way to uh, cross over. Right. Right. Yep. Number two is How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. See, um, obviously, like, Staying Alive, this was from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Um, it was a former number one, and it stayed in the top 10 for 17 weeks, which was a record at the time, and um, kind of used in the background in the movie for one of the more now infamous scenes in the movie it's um the scene where karen lynn gorney apologize or actually forgives travolta for trying to rape her yeah um and um it 
the Bee Gees originally were thinking of giving this to Yvonne Elliman to sing, and they were going to do If I Can't Have You. But um, Robert Stigwood, who is manager of both of them and was a producer of Saturday, Saturday Night Fever, um, decided that wasn't the best idea and maybe you guys should just swap songs. So they ended up with How Deep Is Your Love, and I think that was the right choice because, I mean, it's one of, I mean, one of their better songs. It's There's not really any disco elements to it. I mean, it could have potentially come out in their 60s period too yep. yeah probably but one i mean one of their best known songs one of their better songs as far as i'm concerned what i mean what did what do you have to say about it? i the, i see the, what i remember in saturday night fever the movies that's played over the end credits as they kind of as as he and uh and his dance partner reconcile at the end of the movie isn't it that's that's the song played you know, they just kind of cut. They're like, they're going to get their lives straight. And then they cut to this song as the credits roll over the apartment they're in. That's what. Right. I thought yeah. that was a great ending to Saturday Night Fever. I I think Saturday Night Fever, not that it's a maligned movie by any stretch. I think that's a great movie. That's it's not a musical, but it's the closest thing you can get to a musical without it being one. I actually think it's a great, you know, it should it, it deserves more cinematic respect than it gets not that it's like i said it's not maligned but um i've always enjoyed that movie i think it's a pretty great movie even though um you know it has it's been made fun of a lot over the years but um you know and travolta mm. is really good in that movie i mean I, travolta can be painful at times but he's legitimately good in that movie i think but um yeah yeah i agree with that yeah. but as far as the song is concerned it was it's weird because you mentioned it could fit in their late sixties ballad period, it would also fit on the album they put out after um, Saturday night fever, which was uh, spirits having flown, I think is the one that they put out after that, that had like uh, tragedy on it and stuff. And that song, this song would fit right. that album too, which was, um, we actually have that album. My, my wife has that album and it's basically just a bunch of Barry Gibb falsetto abstractions is what it is. And this one isn't falsetto oriented necessarily, but it would fit in with those songs. So I agree. It's a, good, mm. it's a, it's a great song. I mean, you can't go the first four songs on Saturday night fever, are pretty much the best one, two, three, four punch on any album ever. I mean, you can make that argument. I mean, that's, you're talking about staying alive. How deep is your love night fever? And, um, um, the one that the the one that Tavares did, shit, I can't remember. More than a woman. More than a woman, yeah. Duh. So that's a pretty damn good, you know, four song punch right off the bat. I mean, the album falls off after that, but um, it's pretty amazing and you know deservedly popular at the time. So we're up to the top, though, Matt. You're the drum roll expert, so hit me up with some. Okay, number one, we have. Player with Baby Come Back. And Player, I didn't research how long this was actually number one. They definitely lucked out by slipping into the BG's wake a little bit here, but I definitely can. This is deep yacht rock. And when I say deep yacht rock, I mean yacht rock in the way it's supposed to be defined, which is basically an attempt at studio polish with um, an emphasis on the music being smooth. 
And while Steely Dan would probably be the, and to some degree Fleetwood Mac would probably be the, um, the peak of yacht rock quality, uh, player with this song was more like the bands who were trying to achieve that level of fidelity and quality, but they just weren't as good. And because if you listen to the intro, that this song has a long intro to it, you know, especially if you listen to the album version of it. And you can tell player are trying to pull off their chops, you know, and all that. And it's like, uh-huh. um, you know, there's some guitar in it and all that. But, you know, but it's all of that attempted polish around a song that's basically a replacement level 70s pop song. So right. you sort of get both elements in that song. I actually kind of dig it. I, I used to not. I used to make fun of it a lot, actually. But um, as it, it took yacht rock as a concept for me to appreciate this song and a few others um you know it's almost like it needed its own box to be in to be appreciated because until the term yacht rock was invented um you know all those kind of soft rock mid-tempo rock songs from the late 70s which were all over the charts um really didn't have a place so um i'm not saying this is a great song or anything like that but if it comes on a Yacht Rock uh, station, I won't turn it off either. And I can't say that for all Yacht Rock, Yacht Rock songs. So so good for you, player. You kind of uh, hit the Yacht Rock sweet spot on this one. What do you think? See, well, this did actually, it was sandwiched by BG's um, number one hits. It actually came in between, um, I think, How Deep Is Your Love and Night Fever, or actually staying alive was the next one after this but um i mean yeah it is kind of a replacement level i mean if it's i mean similar to like pablo cruz and yeah stuff like all, that all peak period yacht rock though and people should know yacht rock isn't about yachts i mean i'll listen to the yacht rock station on xm once in a while and they'll throw like rock the boat in there that's not fucking yacht rock and i mean i hate to sound all strident about yacht rock but um those are pablo cruz player ambrosia who suck basically but i mean none of these were great bands but they were all going for the same concept they were going for studio based uh you know rock that was smooth basically you could call it product i mean because it basically was but um Mm -hmm. you know it, it was it was in that realm and steely dan the the difference between steely dan and player is that first of all steely band dan were a hundred times better but right they also had led up to their they, there was an evolution to their point player jumped in at their evolution which means they were probably rightfully considered copycats so that's another reason why some of this music was probably derided at the time but but i i know you weren't born yet but you did hear songs like this you know they were they were wall to wall back then so um, yeah i mean this was basically all that was this kind of style of song was pretty much all you heard on the radio when i was a little kid i was hearing a lot of it because that's what our parents listened to so a part of right a nostalgic part of me is happy that these songs have their place so long live yacht rock right but um well, that's it for this week. We got through 1978. Matt, you'd be born um, two short months later. 
and uh, right, you know, and I was in first grade hanging out. So, what what do you have in mind for next week? Next week, I'm thinking we should do your birth year, so January thirtieth, nineteen seventy one. Cool. I was I was um, I was already I was I was in the womb at that point. <laughs> right. So. All right. Sounds good. Well, that's it for this week on With a Bullet. Matt, oh, great show. Um, and mm-hmm. thanks, thanks to everybody for listening. Yep. Thank you, everybody. And keep your feet on the ground and your hands in the stars or whatever Casey Kasem used to say. Nice. All right. <laughs> that's it. We'll see you next week.